0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Scott Leese, six-time SaaS sales leader, three-time founder, and two-time author. Today, we'll be covering three main areas with Scott. First, pattern recognition from being a six-time SaaS sales leader, plus all from his several SaaS clients. Two, the catalyst of transforming and transitioning from sales executive to strategic advisor, and now to full-out sales influencer. And third, sales rep hero to sales leadership, kind of the pitfalls, the promise, and the reality. Scott, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Measure Up podcast.
1: Thanks for having me here, Ray. I've been building and scaling sales teams for the better part of the last 20 years, either as an operator or as a strategic advisor. And I've started a couple companies. I run my own sales consulting firm. I run a business called Surf and Sales, and that has a podcast called the Surf and Sales Podcast. I run another business called Thursday Night Sales, which is the world's largest virtual sales happy hour. And we have a Slack community over there. And like you said, I've written a couple books. I got another book coming out soon. So I got my hands in a lot of different cookie jars, right?
0: Well, let's double click on the first thing. And that is when I first met you and I was doing some research on your LinkedIn profile, I noticed that you have over 10 years of VP of sales experience for five different SaaS companies. And by the way, when I dug into that, you actually averaged almost three years for four of those companies, which in a world where VP of sales life is about 14 to 16 months, you had to be doing something right. What were some of the common trends or patterns that you identified that informed your decision to pivot your career and launch your own strategic advisory sales services company for SaaS?
1: You know, I just think that getting into a good rhythm of how to build something from the beginning that is set up to scale was really, really critical. You know, I think a lot of companies fail because they can't get a process out of their head and onto paper. And if you can't do that, you can't transfer that knowledge beyond yourself over to, you know, 5, 10, 15, 500 sales reps. And so that was something that I kind of picked up on really early on that building and scaling these orgs out. There was a bit of a playbook to it. It was, let's identify our ICP. Let's figure out who our buyer personas are. Let's build a cold call script, inbound script. A resurrection script if we're trying to win back old customers. What's our objections and rebuttals? And I just built all these things out and set it up like that from day one. The next thing I would mention is I've been a huge supporter and believer in the sales ops and rev ops function from the get-go. That function hasn't been around forever, but about 2011, I got budget approval to have a sales ops hire as my first hire. And from that moment on, I'm like, I'm never taking a head of sales role ever again without getting approval to have a head of sales ops or a head of revenue ops be my first hire. So just having a really good partner there who can build all these reports and de- dive into Salesforce and manage all the vendors and the tools so I don't have to, so I can focus on coaching, recruiting, training, developing, mentoring, all of these other things those are two patterns right there. And the, the last pattern I'd say is, you know, you learn how to pick uh, better horses as you go. You know, I didn't necessarily pick the greatest horses early on. I'd consider five of the six companies I've been ahead of sales at to be successful. Four of them have had staying power, but the last three have been really, really strong. And the last one in particular is a full-blown unicorn working on a multi-billion dollar valuation. And so just learning, you know, to find a company that has a better product, that has, you know, maybe less modern kind of competitors, old antiquated kind of industries, ripe for disruption. And then looking for founders that give you a little more autonomy, that let you do things and trust in your experience rather than being all up in your business when they don't have sales leadership experience and whatnot. So those are the three things that I would give you there for that answer, Rick.
0: Scott, let's talk a little bit more about the first thing, process, because I'm like you, I'm a big process junkie. What stage of a company's evolution do you think having that focus on repeatability, the scalability becomes more important? Is it under 1 million? Is it 1 to 2.5 million? Where do you see the common theme being got to really focus more on process?
1: Well, I think it should be under 1 million. I mean, I would put these things into place before I ever hired salespeople. I would be the one writing it out and building it for myself. Okay. And then I'm the one making calls, sending emails, prospecting, and kind of testing my own theory. And then once I've got some traction, then I can trust that if I hired some other people, you know, hired three people, let's say, okay, let me get that kind of codified knowledge over to these other people. And if I can train those people to have some success, now I'm on to something. I think the mistake people make oftentimes is, you know, they go this founder led sales approach. They don't document anything and they've got quarter million to 2 million in revenue or so. And then they're like, hey, we really need to scale. And they don't know what to do. And they don't have all this information written down anywhere. And they try to hire people. And now you've got five, six sales reps all doing different things. And nobody's communicating the right way. There's just no system. And that's the mistake that people make. So to me, you can't get started on it early enough.
0: You know, let's talk about that because I was following a dialogue just this week on LinkedIn with a purported thought leader for early stage SaaS companies. And his recommendation was your first VP of sales shouldn't be someone who's been a multiple time VP of sales. It should be a former frontline sales manager who's had a team of three to six people who will roll up their sleeves and get out in that field with the reps and actually show by doing. And it sounds like your advice might be, No, you need someone who understands how to implement these processes and truly make it repeatable and scalable.
1: Well, actually, my advice would be to find somebody who's willing to do both. And that's where this concept of like stage-appropriate VP sales hiring comes into play. Because the worry that people have, and I can understand the advice that this person gave, the worry that people have is you hire this like VP of spreadsheets, right? There's a dashboard manager who just wants to sit around and look at reports all day long and won't get in the weeds and in the trenches and get dirty and do some of this you know, early work themselves. If you can find somebody that has done this a few times and is willing to roll up their sleeves and make the calls and build this process out and get dirty and prove it out, that's the ideal situation to me. And there's not that many people out there who are willing to do it. So it's a really good way to separate yourself from the pack. Right. And for me, you know, I went back into the fire at early stage companies with no customers, no revenue six times. Right. And being willing to get in there and build this thing from scratch and do all the heavy lifting every single time. It kind of created this niche for me where it's like, well, you know, who do I want to talk to about getting this company off the ground? Well, this guy, Scott, he's done it a few times and now he's, you know, advising companies to do it. And that just became my thing. It's not to say that you should never hire somebody who is looking for their first shot at it. I was that person at one point in time and I like the concept of a can do over a has done. But if you can find somebody who's done it before, who's still willing to do the dirty work, I think that's your best bet.
0: Scott, does that though bring with it the risk of whether it's the CEO of the board saying, wow, that VP of sales was great from less than a million to five or 10 million, but they're so into weeds, I'm not sure that they can be a second or third level true VP of sales with directors and then managers underneath them. Do you see that kind of bias happening sometimes in that environment?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that kind of bias and that kind of thinking amongst boards and VCs and founders is gonna exist and does exist no matter what. It's one of the occupational hazards of being a sales leader, right? It'd be like, oh, you've done a great job of getting companies to 30 million, but you've never taken a company public before. So you get topped off by somebody else. We got to go a lot of different directions here. This is one of the things that pisses me off about the standard four year vest. Like if I'm the early stage VP and my job is to get you to 25 million in ARR, right? And I do it in two and a half to three years, but then, you know, you're going to tell me that I'm not the guy to take you to a hundred million. So I get topped off. Now, all of a sudden I'm out that extra bit of equity. I'm unable to vest. So why shouldn't I have just vested all the way already in two and a half to three years? Maybe the vesting should not be based on time, but should be based on production. If I did what I was supposed to do, which was get you to 25 million, why am I not fully vested? You know, this thing drives me nuts. I have a real passion for like at some point here, trying to break down the current paradigm and you know, have a little bit more respect for sales leaders who operate at a particular stage. And I think some people don't get enough chances to even prove themselves that they can take it from 25 to 50 or 50 to 100 or 100 to IPO. It's an occupational hazard for sure.
0: I totally agree. It's interesting. I've been fortunate enough to lead companies from pre-product, pre-revenue, and I've also ran global worldwide sales organizations of 150 million to 400 million. So I've done both. And I actually would get asked sometimes by a CEO that the VC was actually introducing to me to, And they'd say, so what are you? Are you a startup guy? Are you a big company process guy? And I'm like, well, I've done both successfully multiple times. Why do you need to put me in a box? But it seems like everybody wants to put you in a box. And one of the things, Scott, I found, and maybe this is advice to first or second time VPs of sales out there, if you're in that much earlier stage, let's say it's less than 1 million or even up to 5 to 10 and they bring you in to get you to 25 or 50 million, I would always negotiate a performance bonus at that milestone because I knew that there was going to be risk. So if we took it from one to 20 million or 25 million, I would ask for a quarter million to a half million dollar bonus if we hit that as a way to make up for the risk of not vesting fully. What do you think of that approach?
1: I love that approach. I think you're going to have a big challenge though at a lot of early stage startups with them giving you that amount of cash. You know, So the bonus typically comes in the form of equity, which is great if you're around to vest all that equity. But again, back to what I was saying before, Sometimes you hit that milestone you get this equity and then you know the powers that be decide you've done great to get us here we're just concerned with your ability to get us to that next big milestone so you know we're going to move on and then the equity they gave you amounts to be nothing you know if you're at a larger company and you can get that kind of bonus in cash that's the way to go I, I would be all 100 percent in favor of that
0: let me ask Scott, because you had, you know, several successful kind of runs as VP of Sales. Was this a callous to you deciding to launch your own advisory services company and not keep doing the VP of Sales thing? 100.
1: You know, occupational hazards, crazy stress levels, work-life balance totally out of whack. In my 40s, not sure I want to work for 23-year-old founders anymore who don't have much experience. On and on and on. So for me. I recognized maybe 10 years ago that at some point I wasn't going to want to do this anymore. And how many more times was I going to be able to jump into the fire? But I wanted to get a win and then I wanted to hopefully have one big win. So I'd kind of round out my career as an operator. So I got a nice kind of middle of the road win. And then, you know, the last company I was at, Qualia, looks like it's going to be a massive win. And so I sort of was like, well, I did what I came here to do. And now it's time for me to do the next thing and go out on my own and be my own boss and kind of have a different lifestyle and approach and pursue different passions. And rather than just helping one company grow, now I can help 10, 12 at a time. And that's a lot of fun and keeps my skills sharp as I operate in different sales cycles and different markets, you know, different price points, different types of talent, different experience levels, all this kind of stuff. So I'm really enjoying it. All those occupational hazards were definitely a catalyst and I'm noticing a huge trend of people who have been sales leaders, who are kind of bowing out a little bit earlier and earlier rather than doing it more and more times.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I ran sales and sales and marketing teams for 30 plus years, right? And it took me that long to say, I'm going to go out and do my own thing. And that's what I wanted to talk about next was, you know, it's a pretty high paying job as a VP of sales, great base salary, great variable compensation. You've got prestige and some power, right? And that can be really scary to make that transition. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about the first one to two years of that transition and any of the challenges and obstacles that you had to overcome? Well,
1: I'm a little bit different in that I was a pretty big chicken shit in terms of like cutting the W-2. And so what I did was while I was working, I started building out these additional streams of revenue and started building out my brand. So, you know, I wrote a book in 2017 called Addicted to the Process. That book sold pretty well, started to be a little bit of a calling card, helped get my name out there a little bit. I started picking up some side gigs, you know, as a consultant or doing some training on site with different companies. Then I started this business called Surf and Sales, which is a sales and leadership conference. And so I just kind of slowly started building up my income on the side. And I reached a point where my income from all of my side hustles matched what I was earning in base salary and variable comp from my W-2 job. And once I got to that place, I was like, it's time. So I de-risked myself, at least in my mind, quite a bit. And by that time, I'd have been a six-time operator. You know, I'd written a best-selling book. I had another business that people were aware of. I already had consulting clients. I had a good relationship with a VC firm that I had helped a couple customers out. So it felt like, you know, I might be able to get some easy, quick wins there. And so that's kind of how I went about it. You know, I leveraged the size of my network, which is quite substantial. You know, I cut the W-2 in October of 2019, right? So I had only been in business for myself on a full-time basis about four months when COVID hit you know and, and at first i think like most people i was like oh shit what's going to happen but you know it's actually proved to be a bit of a forcing function as a lot of sales orgs needed to change and adjust and seek help so i've been very fortunate over the last year things have gone quite well for me
0: scott there's a lot of discussion about side hustle especially for b2b sales professionals and i just don't understand it so help me better understand it when you're a vp of sales at an early stage saas company That's a 50 to 60 hour a week job. How do you manage both of those requirements simultaneously?
1: Well, you start small. You know, I think people maybe hear side hustle and they start thinking, how the heck can I do another job that is going to bring me $100,000 a year? I didn't think that way. I thought, what can I do or what can I build that would like pay a bill or two, Right. So, you know, I've done pretty well and I invested in some real estate properties. Well, those real estate properties spit me a couple hundred dollars a month in profit. So there's a little side hustle. I write this book, you know, I'm not getting rich off this book, but there's a couple hundred dollars a month that comes in off of that. So I'm like, okay, there's my cell phone bill, there's my electric bill or whatever. So I started thinking about it in terms of bills that I would be able to pay. And then everybody has PTO, right? So I use my PTO to host the surf and sales summit. So I'd be on PTO from my W2 job. I leveraged my network on LinkedIn and other places to get attention for surf and sales. And I'd go down to Costa Rica and spend a week down there. And I make a good chunk of money at that business. So you just find a way to become ruthlessly efficient with your time. And it only works if you're doing really good at your main job. If you're not doing good at your main job, like you're going to get so much shit for being distracted and doing other things. If you're not hitting your numbers, if you're not hitting your hiring goals, you're a dead duck. But if you're doing those things and are blessed to work for a boss that is like, look, I don't care what you do on the side, as long as you hit our numbers, then, you know, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by not exploring that stuff. You said it yourself, right? You got a 14 to 16 month shelf life on average. What am I going to do? Invest my entire future in this company that might cast me aside in a year? That doesn't make any sense to me. And look how many people lost their job during COVID and were left with nothing and were scrambling. i never, ever, ever wanted to leave myself exposed like that. So even if I did lose my job, I wanted to have some semblance of an income coming in that I could count on that was mine. And I'm a huge proponent of everybody, not just in sales leadership, finding ways to create or build or just utilize their knowledge and their skills to diversify their income.
0: Got right here on the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. We're going to define a new term. I'd love to get your response. Instead of side hustle, I think what you just defined to me was micro entrepreneurship. You I had like these two or three micro entrepreneur endeavors that allowed you then to become a full time entrepreneur.
1: I love that, actually. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. And that's essentially what I did, right? I had all these micro businesses, micro entrepreneur endeavors, and all of those things are now bundled into what I do for a living in my company, which is solopreneur. I like that term.
0: Scott, you know, this is the first time it's been about 18 months now since I've actually launched my own company versus doing what I did for 30 years, which was help other people get multiples and multiples on their money. But when I looked at your profile, I saw that you have almost 64,000 followers on LinkedIn. And as someone who's using LinkedIn as a brand awareness channel, I'm like, how in the hell did Scott do that? And then I'm seeing other people selling their playbook of how to build LinkedIn following. So first of all, how in the heck did you do that? And number two, why aren't you trying to monetize that as another micro entrepreneurial revenue stream?
1: That's a great question. Let me start with how I built it. You know, how I built it was not with branding in mind, nor attention seeking or anything like that. I built it because as a VP of sales in the talent wars in San Francisco and everywhere else, I thought that it would help me recruit better. I also felt like it would help me save money in recruiting. And so I just started connecting with everybody who was in sales in all of these different markets that I would be hiring for. And, you know, at the time I had offices in Manhattan, in Austin, in Santa Monica, and in San Francisco. So I just literally started sending connection requests out to anybody in sales in those markets and then started expanding to other major cities and then some smaller cities and whatnot. And I was saving tens of thousands of dollars every single quarter. I didn't spend a dime on recruiting, rate not a dime. So we need reps or managers. Like I just message people and I'd make a post on LinkedIn. And so that's how my network started growing. And then I started actually putting some time into engaging with other people's content, which I had never really done before. And I looked for patterns and things that were interesting that they were doing and tried to figure out what could I add to the conversation. And one of the things that I noticed was a lot of advice felt really boring and bland and stale. Nobody was taking chances. Nobody was saying things that most people believe to be true, but you know, I felt like people were too scared to say it. So I kind of took this stance of like, you know what? I am who I am. I'm going to speak the truth about things. I might be a little bit controversial at times. I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I'm going to take a stand, not hide behind a keyboard. I'm going to stand up for what things I believe in and whatnot. And I started posting, you know, and then the following started growing. So that's that's how I built it. Why don't I monetize it? I get real uncomfortable when I think about somebody selling a course on how to grow a LinkedIn following for thousands of dollars who has a smaller following than me. And there's a lot of people who have a larger following than I do that aren't selling those kind of courses. So it just feels kind of icky to me. It also is just something that's not complicated at all. Like It's not that hard. It just takes time. You just have to build a network, connect with people engage with people's content and then start writing your own content. That's it. It's not that complicated. So I'm not a fan of people who are trying to overcomplicate this thing and then squeeze people who are desperate for help for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. I'm just not wired that way.
0: Sounds like a opportunity for a Nike ad. Just do it. You don't need to go out and pay thousands. Just get involved. But I have a question about something that you said, and that is, Take a chance. Get yourself involved in some of the discussions. And if you got a different opinion, share it. I'm finding with a lot of the bigger LinkedIn influencers that if you put out a contrarian comment to something they say, they get pissed off. And I even had one thought leader who was dead wrong with something that he said. And it's been proven now over the last year that he was wrong but he actually blocked me as a connection saying that me going against his advice was rude and inappropriate. Did you ever have that? I mean, I
1: tend to go against people sometimes. Here's the thing. I know that people are very sensitive about this and whether it's like not having the time to engage in a back and forth dialogue or, you know, being defensive because trolls are real and some people just attack you for no reason So you're overly sensitive or not. Here's the thing. I usually reach out to the person before I'm going to disagree with them and say, hey, Ray, just so you know, I don't agree with this take here. So I'm going to respond to it. I just wanted to let you know, like not attacking you at all. I just want to add a counterpoint and get a discussion going. And I've done that a couple of times. And the message has been received very well from people. So I have no idea if somebody's ever blocked me or not. I don't think that they have based on me offering a contrarian point of view, but it's a real thing. People's egos get wrapped up in the size of their following and the number of likes they have and all that kind of stuff. I have found that messaging them privately and letting them know, hey, I disagree and I'm going to write this kind of smooths things out a little bit.
0: Scott, that is such great advice. And it's funny, over all these years, I always learn you don't want to surprise your CEO or your board of directors. So you make sure they know how the quarter's going before the is over, right? No surprises. Yes. Yeah. This is exactly that same advice. If you're going to take a contrarian position, have the politeness to reach out and say, I'm going to take a different perspective and I'd love to dialogue with you. That's great advice, Scott. So let's pivot to our last topic. And that is, you mentioned being an author and you're getting ready to launch your next book. And I believe that's the Sales Rep to Sales Leader book. Is that correct?
1: Well, actually, From Rep to Manager came out in January, and it's all about how to go from individual contributor to sales leadership and ask yourself the right questions to see if it's right for you and how to get it and all that kind of thing. But I have another book coming out in early Q2 that is all about the life and trials and tribulations of being a VP of sales. And that book is called More Than a Number. Hopefully it comes out in April or May. So yeah, it'll be two books this year, which will be a first for me. Two books in one year is a lot. I think I'm going to be done writing for a while.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. The next one. More than a more than
1: more a, than a number. number. Yeah. A play on words, of course, you know, because we as VPs of sales sometimes get kind of treated like we're just a number and sales reps get treated like you're just a number. And the idea is you not know, that we're human beings as well. And we need support and we need help and we need coaching and we need training. And there is not all that much out there if you're looking to be a VP of sales. So I'm trying to fill that gap a little bit and talk to people about my experience in the role and see if I can't make other people's journey a little easier than mine was.
0: Well, let's circle back to the book you just released in January, because I cannot tell you hundreds and hundreds of early career salespeople who've worked in my organization. They are so anxious to become that sales manager, right? Being promoted. And I have found that a percentage, and I'll say maybe more than 50%, we're probably going to be better served by staying in a individual contributor role for a few more years, make the money, learn the skills versus being leaders. Scott, how do you mentor early career peoples on the risk versus rewards of becoming a sales manager too early in your career?
1: Well, I think you just have to have that conversation and be really, really candid with it. You know, I mean, I'm having that conversation. I'm telling people like, are you ready to lose some autonomy? Are you ready to have your hours that you work every single day be extended? Are you ready to no longer have control over your commission check? and have it be tied up into other people's performance that probably don't care as much as you do. Are you ready to serve people and put their needs before yours? Are you ready to go into a conference room and fight a battle with CFOs and CEOs to try to get your people paid more or try to get them a tool that will help their job get better? Are you ready to be a therapist 75% of the time to sales reps who are struggling and whose lives are falling apart? Just having that dialogue sometimes is enough to open people's eyes and have them go, oh shit, you know, I don't know if I really want to deal with all that. I didn't really think about that stuff before. And it's really important. It's really, really important. It doesn't happen enough. Too many times companies just pluck somebody who was a number one rep and say, hey, you're a manager. Well, what if that person is not a teacher? What if they're not patient enough to walk somebody through how to be successful? What if they don't have empathy enough to kind of work through somebody's you know, life story and their traumas and their struggles and you, you can't relate to them? How do you empathize and help them get through it? So that's my biggest piece of advice is just you've got to have the conversation and you've got to be absolutely blunt, honest truth when you're talking about what the role is like. And if somebody is still there at the end saying, no, that's what I want. Well, then I think the odds are a little better that they're cut for the role.
0: And the other thing I think we do, especially in earlier stage companies, we'll pluck that number one or number two salesperson, make them a manager and not invest hardly any dollars in time in training yeah. them how to be a sales manager. And I think it's actually, I don't know, a disease right now in all these early stage companies. Do you agree? And how do we change that dynamic?
1: A hundred percent agree. Yeah. I mean, just think about this real quick. Think about how many people you know who, are, who do sales training and who teach reps how to sell. Now do the same exercise and think about how many people are out there who teach reps how to become managers or who teach sales managers how to be good sales managers. Now take it a step further and think how many people out there teach managers and directors how to be a VP of sales and how many people train VPs to be really good VPs. The list gets smaller and smaller and smaller. There's a huge void. So whether it's books or video courses or eBooks or shit, even podcasts talk about it. There's just not that much stuff out there. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, for creators, people like you and I, Ray, to focus on that end of the market. You know, people who've been around a little longer, not so much this like individual contributor SDR AE model. There's tons of people there trying to help those folks. Let's help the people who are in this VP of sales role for the first or second time. Let's help women who are in a VP of sales role for the first time, or minorities who are in the VP of sales role for the first time. Those are the things that kind of excite me at this point in time in my career. And the opportunity for us to be a mentor to those folks and this concept I've been playing with of mentorship at scale is really important to me. How many people can we impact at this higher level so they can then send the elevator back down and help us continue to elevate the profession when we're gone?
0: Got very admirable goal. And it's interesting. I know one of your partners, I think, on Surf and Sales is Richard Harris. And Richard and I are conducting some research right now on the top priorities for skills development of sales leaders at every level. And what's interesting at that VP and above level, the number one skill development area is forecast management. The second is metrics management. And the third is performance management. Because these are things that as a individual contributor, no one ever says you have to do forecast management or performance management for other people. So I totally agree. It's a huge gap. And the fact that you're giving back like that, Scott, good on you.
1: I appreciate that, Ray. And same to you and Richard, you know, for conducting the study and for content that you put out once it's complete.
0: Well, let's wrap up here on your appearance on the Metrics of Major Up podcast with my three standard questions. Number one, which CEO or company do you think is a must follow in 2021?
1: Hmm. CEO, I'm going to go with David Cancel from Drift, probably because he's just on my mind right now, but he's just so intelligent, so empathetic. I just think he's an incredible leader. He was just on the uh, Surf and Sales podcast the other day. And what company is a must follow? I'm going to be biased here, Ray. I'm going to tell everybody, you need to keep your eyes on my old company, Qualia. Qualia became a unicorn and is speeding towards multi-billion dollar and IPO. It's a property tech company, which is a real hot space. So people, you know, haven't heard of us. We're not necessarily in like a sexy industry selling MarTech or sales tech or anything like that, but keep your eye on Qualia.
0: Okay. Next question. Which tool should every SaaS company make sure they have in their toolkit?
1: Well, I mean, it's got to be a CRM and I am talking to a couple people right now who are still using spreadsheets and I'm trying to remind them that it's not 2004 anymore because that's what I did in 2004. So I really don't know how you can build a successful SaaS company without a CRM anymore. And I would take that even a step further to say, I don't even know how you could do it without a sales enablement platform, you know, working with the sales loft or an outreach or Manila soft, one of those kind of tools. Those are table stakes to me and not using those is just like a grave mistake. And if I was a salesperson, I would not go work at your organization if you weren't arming me with those tools.
0: It's interesting. As part of the research we're doing with Richard, the number one skills development for sales development, both frontline managers and directors, was cadence development, which is perfectly aligned to how do you optimize the return from a sales engagement platform, right? That's right. I'm glad it backs it up. And then my third and last question, what advice would you give a recent college graduate or very early career professional who wants to be the next Scott Lease? What advice would you give them?
1: Buckle up. (laughs) because it doesn't happen overnight. I spent 16 years, almost 16 years as a sales leader, building and scaling companies and getting real good at my job before I really gave any attention to building my brand or doing some of the side hustle kind of stuff. So I think that's the challenge that these kids have now. It's like they see everybody with brands and following and side hustles and different projects, and they all want to do that but I don't think they saw the 10 to 15 to 20 years that people like me put into just doing my job and doing it well before I started doing all those kind of things. So I'd say buckle up because it's a long ride and there's a lot of work involved.
0: Scott, I think that advice, and I'm going to just parrot it, that is get really good at your chosen profession before you start trying to help other people be as good as you are. That's great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast, Scott.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Ray. Anytime, man.
0: Well, that's a wrap to today's episode. And if you are enjoying our guest and the topics we discuss on the podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us a rating and provide us your comments so we can make this better and better for our listening audience. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics That Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.